Welcome to the Cinematic Void Podcast. Cinematic Void is a cult film series that hosts screenings in the Los Angeles area. And hey, we're going to be able to do that very soon in person once again. But we're also going to keep doing those virtual ones. I'm your host, Jim Branscombe. And joining me as always is... Hey, hey, it's Nick Vance. Paranormal Futures on all these social media platforms. You can find Cinematic Void on the World Wide Web at cinematicvoid.com as well as Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, and all major podcast platforms. If you want to support The Void, you consider joining our Patreon. Not only do you get cool perks, but you make this podcast as well as a cinematic movie possible. All right, Jim, what are we talking about today? We're kind of going back to one of my favorite subgenres, but not quite exactly. We're going to be talking about giallo-adjacent movies. And what do I mean by giallo-adjacent? I mean, movies that didn't come from Italy, weren't directed by people like Dario Argento, Lucio Fulci, Sergio Martino, and stuff like that. But... Films that share, I guess, a similarity, a vibe, a thematic kind of thing together. This is a variety of films. The five we're talking about, I basically picked because I feel like they all kind of go together in many ways. And also kind of like touch different bases of Giallo films. And so as we're talking about these films, obviously we're going to talk about why these films, or at least I and you and... Other people consider them giallo adjacent, as well as like other giallos that kind of are similar in the same vein that you could pair with and do maybe your own double features or triple features at your house or at home or whatever. So, yeah, I've been looking for this one mostly because it's five, I think you'll agree, five really, really great classic movies, regardless of genre. For last couple episodes, there's been a few clunkers thrown in there here and there. And mostly because of the theme, so occasionally you're going to talk about a movie that, eh, not that big into, but today, in this episode, I assure you that all five of these movies are classic bangers. Really excited to talk about them. So, I'm going to shut the fuck up now, and we're just going to jump right into it. Our first film we're going to talk about that is Giallo Adjacent. came out in 1972. It's directed by Robert Altman. Not a name you would think is associated with Giallos at all if you look at his filmography. But this this movie is essentially Robert Altman making a Giallo, and it's called Images. The film stars Susanna York, who was in The Silent Partner and Superman, the original one with Christopher Reeves. And she also won a Best Actress Award at the Cannes Film Festival for being in Images. The film also stars Renee Aubergeois, who was in bunch of other Robert Altman productions, including MASH, Brewster McCloud, McCabe and Mrs. Miller, as well as another film we'll be talking about a little bit later in this podcast, Eyes of Laura Mars. And it also stars Marcel Brizolfi, who was in The French Connection and Z, 
Hugh Malalas, who had previously been in Robert Altman's Became Mrs. Miller, and Katherine Harrison in her film debut. The script was written, and I'm doing quotes as I say written, and we'll get into why in a little bit, by Altman and York. Features cinematography by legendary um, DP Vilmus Zygmunt, an Academy Award-nominated score by John Williams, and soundscapes by Japanese avant-garde musician Stumu Yamashade, who also worked on Phase 4 and The Man Who Fell to Earth. And for those of you who haven't seen Images, first you probably should pause this podcast and go watch it, but if you're not... Here's a little summary to fill you in here. A woman writing a children's fantasy story is constantly harassed by visits and communications from people who may or may not be real. When she and her husband pay visit to their isolated countryside retreat, her childhood home, her experience intensifies and she resorts to drastic measures to eliminate the problem. So right off the bat, this is the only time that Robert Altman ever made a horror film. I'm sure... You know, they tried to dismiss as like, it's a thriller, it's an elevated thriller, that kind of bullshit. No, it's a fucking horror movie. And it's very, very Giallo-esque. Although... I think this is the only uh, the only Altman I've seen, so I, I have no real uh, real real idea what he, what he does. <laughs> That's insane. I mean... Yeah. <laughs> I, I think there's a Criterion sale coming up uh, in July. You should pick yourself up some Altman movies. Actually, you know what? I take it back. I've seen the long goodbye. Okay, so you. So I. So it gives me maybe a different, a little different side there. But yes, yeah, so I've only seen those two. Yeah. Anyway, it's fine. They're they're both really really good. So, I'm not. Also, uh, also I want to throw out Silent Partner, one of my favorite Christmas films. There you go. But anyway, sorry to derail everything. Yeah. Well, and <laughs> Silent Partner also stars Elliot Gould, who was in the long goodbye. So that's her whole tie in here. Oh yeah. It's magic, and I don't know. <laughs> And as we were saying, like, you know, obviously the theme is Jallo adjacent, but like, you know, we can't really talk about images without the debt this film owes to Igmar Bergman's persona, as well as Roman Polanski's repulsion. I mean, obviously, and I think you've seen both of those movies too, it's definitely, there's definitely a through line in there. And the other big takeaway from this movie, it's it's a masterclass on the use of imagery, sound, and misdirection. Because if you're not paying attention, it's going to fuck you up. Because there's a lot of little sneakiness going on. And how like Altman shot it, constructed it, edited, all that stuff. And one last thing before we start diving in a little bit deeper. This was a project Altman had been, tr- been trying to make since the 60s. And it's kind of part of a loose trilogy with That Cold Day in the Park and Three Women. And if you haven't seen Three Women, definitely pick that up on your next Criterion sale. That movie's phenomenal. And so those aren't really the, but you would say that those don't are nowhere near being Giallo adjacent. Eh, there might be a little bit in um Three Women, but like they're not as overt as this. This, you know, those are more on the drama end of it and less like horror thriller elements. This one is like you know you have violence and all that stuff. And since we're talking about Giallo ness. How is this movie Jallo Jason? Well, so I remember when this came out on DVD back in the, I think, early to mid-2000s, and a mutual friend of ours, Bruce Holchek of Cinemacana, had said, like, you should pick that up. It's Altman doing a Giallo. And I was like, all right, I got to see this, because I've seen other Altman movies that are really, really phenomenal. And I picked it up and was just completely blown away and it's like it seriously is 
literally, it's like Altman taking his style and running it through a Giallo filter. It's uncanny. But, you know, if you want to get surface level cheeky about it, there's a shot where Rene Aubergine has on black leather gloves, you know, classic Giallo killer wear. And there's extreme close-ups of him, like, picking up a phone and stuff like that. So it's like, you know, that's obviously going to set the tone for Giallo-ness there. And to continue to be cheeky, Altman loved Zooms. Who else loves Zooms? Italians love Zooms. Granted, Altman's Zooms are a little, like, slow push-ins and that kind of stuff, which this movie has, whereas, like, people like Umberto Lindsay love, like, crash Zooms and just Zooming all over the fucking place. But the shared love of Zooms is another connection that kind of gives images its jealousness. Now, another trait that a lot of Giallos have that share with this movie is the protagonist is an artist. Susanna York's character is a children's author, plus, you know... There's a camera feature prominent in the film that her husband's, you know, setting up that still life with the deer head and the leaves and the guns and stuff like that. So there's kind of a weird, like, imagery that wouldn't, you know, wouldn't seem out of the ordinary in a giallo with that. Plus, you know, giallo is like the focus on people that have art backgrounds. There's a lot of pianists, musicians, obviously painters, all kinds of artists, you know, that... The genre's filled with them, so that's your other connection. And this is a good point to kind of talk about the script. Now, in Altman's original script, York's character wasn't an author, but when they were discussing the script together, she mentioned to Altman that, like, she was working on a children's book called In Search of Unicorns. Altman liked the book so much, he said, would you be okay if you read some passages from your book in the movie? And that's why she got a writing credit, and I think they credit her book at the end, in the end credits the, that, that she's reading. So that's kind of what tied it together. I say vibe-wise, if you're looking for other giallos that are kind of similar in the vein of images, I'm going to throw a few out there that we've talked about and pretty recently, actually. Um, I'd say Orgasmo by Roberto Lindsay, starring Carol Baker, All the Colors of the Dark, or a Lizard with a Woman's Skin, which I think Lizard might be the closest out of the three to, like, what's going on with images. And the reason why I'm saying those, because all four of those films have female protagonists who are kind of questioning their own reality, because Susanna York's character is, like, talking to a dead person, seeing dead people, seeing people that are obviously not there. And it, a, theme we'll, uh, a theme we'll talk about a lot today. Yeah, there's a, there's a lot of visions and misdirection and, like, questioning a reality. Again... It's a giallo trope that's been used countless times, and images goes all in on it. Besides the giallo-ness of it, there's a couple other things that I think kind of fit in there that maybe aren't, well, I'd say um, Brian De Palma's Sisters, which is an, would be a nice companion piece to this movie, too, which is also very giallo-esque, and George Romero's Season of the Witch, which, not too giallo-y, but like, definitely a similar vibe, and for the hell of it, you throw in Robert Wise's version of The Haunting, too. With the, you know, the mental collapse into chaos, nightmares, question reality. So it all fits together. Another thing that kind of pushes images to be very Giallo-like, and it's going to seem weird that we're mentioning this because of the composer, because when you hear this composer, you think of big, grand, like, scores, is John Williams. 
his score is incredible in this movie, and it's kind of unlike what he normally does. I mean, the, the score is really experimental, plus, like, the, you know, the soundscapes going with it. It's, like, a really eerie thing. It's, like, it's cool because it's different from him, because, like, it's not Jaws. It's not fucking Star Wars. It's not Indiana Jones or any of those things. It's a really interesting collection of music. And I was listening to the commentary with Robert Altman when he was talking about, um... Maybe it wasn't a commentary, maybe it's a making up, but he's talking about John Williams, and, like, he basically had John Williams write a score without the movie being done, and Altman uses use the pieces that way because he's like i altman didn't want to mickey mouse the movie which if you're not familiar with that term is like when some people score movies they do a thing called mickey mousing which is like every the cues kind of elevate and accentuate certain things in the movie like it's just playing along with the movie and just kind of like beefing up things that may or may not work without them if that makes sense and, yeah, totally. and because of Altman's style, Altman, Altman's very unconventional in how he makes films. And obviously it's like, no, I don't want to do that. I don't want, I don't want the score to be so on the fucking nose that it takes away from what we're doing in the movie. So he just let John Williams compose a bunch of stuff and put it in the movie. And I think the results are pretty excellent, I would say. Also in images, one of my favorite things has a dummy drop, a pretty good one. It's a dummy going down a waterfall, so... Giallos love their dummies. Think of Fulci's The Psychic, or Don't Torture Duckling, or even All the Colors of the Dark, or Autopsy. Lots of classic dummy drops in the Giallo genre, and Images carries on that tradition. Other things, the putting together of the puzzle, which reveals the house where she's at, at the end of the movie. You know how they have that whole puzzle building thing? It's, again... Kind of a little giallo motif. I think of like those extreme close-ups in Argento movies and people doing like, you know, playing chess or like playing with little toys mm -hmm. and stuff like that. It's it's a little thing, but it's like, it's in giallos and it's like, it's really effective. Usually when those things pop in giallos, it's to push the story forward, which this does, or reveal something or information. I think about like the callous Argento movies where people are looking for missing paintings or clues and that kind of stuff. So it's like, creating the clue other things nightmare sequences and hallucinations we already hit on a bunch of giallos that kind of dive into there like all the colors of the dark and orgasmo and a lizard in women's skin we also have doppelgangers and ghosts which is you know again it's the question in reality and there's a scare that's early on it's not really telegraphed as a scare but it's early in the movie when um Suzanne York is at home waiting for her husband who comes in, who takes off his pants first, but leaves on his driving gloves, which is a choice. I think I would take the gloves off before taking off the pants, but, you know. Where do you stand on this, Nick? I, I'm, I'm with it. Leave gloves, gloves on all day. Let's go. <laughs> all right, so you're gloves, gloves no pants? Team yeah, gloves? Team gloves, no pants, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm going to disagree with you on that one, but it's fine, you know, but there's it. The staging of what happens is that he, the husband vanishes and one of the ghosts that she sees or doppelgangers or hallucination of like her dead ex lover, whoever that person really is, pops up and it's a really good scare. It's kind of reminiscent of some of the like tricks Baba would do in some of those giallos and some of those gothic horrors, like the one I'm thinking of, even though it came out way after images is um shock there's a scene where like a little boy's like running towards daria nicolata's character and 
little boy disappears and out pops like a grown man demon thing. It's, I wouldn't say it's not done exactly like that, but like the tone and the exchange and the, 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 the changing of people is kind of the same vibe. And it's, that's a really good scene. And apparently that was the first scene Altman had worked out when he wrote his script in the sixties. And that was one of the main things that carried over when he finally made this movie. It's also, this sequence is proto-Brian De Palma in style. And actually, a lot of the scenes are kind of like that. Which is, again, I never, you know, wouldn't think to put Brian De Palma and Robert Altman in the same spectrum other than they were filmmakers that got big in the 70s. But, you know, some of those sequences are planned out. Shot selection. You know, there's, there's a scene in there where Susanna York is parked on a hill... And she looks down at the her childhood home that they're going to visit. And she sees herself get out of the car and go in the house. And then you cut to the Susanna York character that's in the house. And you never see the Susanna York that's on top of the hill again. Which is just... It's, it's, it's subtle, but when you think about it, it's like, that's fucking crazy. It's... Well, so, something I... I um, something that I could probably ask about almost every film we're talking about tonight, right? It's just like, and and so I think like even I could just start with this first one because it's Altman. So it's like something he's known for something completely different, but totally out of left field, he does this and it's like, are they doing Giallo? And, and so same for Brian De Palma, like you just said, or are they doing Hitch- Hitchcock, you know? It's a fair and, point. And, and is that what, Jallos were doing, you know. Some of them are doing Bava. They're, they're doing Bava. They're doing Hitchcock. So obviously they're pulling from those places. Um, and maybe Altman has seen a bunch of Giallo as well. But uh, I don't know. I don't know if I'm convinced. Maybe he's just doing his version of Hitchcock. I, I definitely think there's Hitchcock in there. And you also got to think the through line is that Hitchcock does have a specter over Giallo in many ways because he made thrillers. And gi- yeah. giallos are thrillers, and like, there's definitely some Hitchcockian moments in a lot of giallos, and that's that's a good debate. Is it like, is it the funneling of Hitchcock in the '70s, mm-hmm. what creates a similarity to making these kind of movies giallo? I don't really know. I've never seen Altman talk about giallos. I know he mentioned film noir and persona in regards to like images, but again film noir going into German creamies goes into giallo. So it's like, right. It all makes sense. Yeah. It, it, I mean, it might, he might have never seen a giallo, but his influences are coming from the same place and it shows. Right. Mm -hmm. And since we're keep on talking about this and Hitchcock and giallos and creamies and all that stuff, let's talk about the violence and murder sequences in this movie. They're pretty brutal and nasty and kind of unexpected. Oh Yeah. Like, we talked about the dummy drop, but, like, the whole lead-up to is Susanna York, like, thinking she's running down her doppelganger, who in reality is actually her husband, who she hits with a car and sends him flying over the fucking waterfall. There's the, um, the ghost that she thinks she shoots, you know, with a shotgun. Like, there's a lot of brutal, nasty violence in it. It, the violence... Is giallo-esque, but the kills aren't necessary giallo-esque, if that makes sense. It fucks with you psychologically because they're so brutal, but then it's like, was that real or not, you know? 
Yeah. And the way that it keeps positioning that every time. I, I, I was, I just really like that. On her. No, it, that, that's an, another good point because like, if you look at, you know, she hits a ghost with a bottle of wine or show, I forget what it is, but something like that. Right. It's especially brutal, but do I have to care about it because they, because it wasn't real. <laughs> that's what, you know, but was it real? That's the other right, thing. Right. Exactly. Right. Totally. I mean, it, it definitely leaves questions to be answered, which is why I really like this movie because it's ambiguous in what it is, which a lot of giallos are. And it's also not a very comforting movie because it ends on a pretty bleak, dark note. Is like Susanna York's character is just going full into the madness. She's like, oh, I took care of everything. Or did I just kill a bunch of people that are my friends? Right. Don't really know. A couple other things that are giallo adjacent in this movie uh although it's not really meant to be spelled out in the movie when i was listening to altman's commentary he was talking about the opening sequence where you see a bunch of close-ups of things and like objects and like he was basically trying to strongly imply an occult element to the movie even though it's not very overt but like when you look at some of those things that you see lying around it kind of brings that up at least that feeling or vibe, even though it's not like she's not doing like witchy shit or anything like that. It's just like, it's kind of in the background. And I think that's kind of cool because a lot of giallos kind of dip their toes in the occult here and there. And my last thing, big takeaway when I think of images in the lens of a giallo is there's a lot of fetishy close-ups on objects. And then there's prominent items in the background that you see there that come into play later, which a lot of giallos have done too. Like I think specifically the knives on the wall. It's not like really focused, but like it's positioned in a way that you can't miss. There's a rack of knives on the wall. And it's just, when are these motherfuckers getting used? So uh, I, you know, I, this might, I know there's probably gonna be some debate on this one of how giallo it is. I think in the spectrum of when it came out, which is early 70s. It's closer to the 60s vibe of those giallos that were coming out. Not quite Black Love Killer, but more like psychosexual thrillers, even though like it's not really a psychosexual type movie overtly, but it's there. It's underlying, which goes back to the, you know, paying homage to Repulsion and um, Persona. So it's definitely there. It's just probably not as overt, but... I'd say it's definitely there. This film might have actually been more Giallo-esque if the original, one of the original proposed versions actually happened. It was, at one point, the film was supposed to star um, Italian legend Sophia Loren. It was supposed to be shot in Milan, which would have, you know, Milan's in Italy. That would have driven home the whole Giallo thing a lot. But, you know, they they ended up shooting in Wicklow, Ireland, which is kind of a nondescript part of Ireland. It looks like it could be any countryside, but it, it definitely still feels like English, European-like countryside, which, again, if you think about a lot of giallos that went over the UK and Scotland and Ireland and, like, you know, didn't shoot in Italy. They shot in other countries, mostly to, you know, kind of sell it as a bigger in other markets, so it wasn't just like an Italian export. Th- those countryside vibes kind of fit into a lot of giallos, too. And I guess for me, I-, I can easily say this is top three Altman movie. When you look at those movies, they're all vastly different, but that was Altman's career anyway. Like, there's a big difference between, say, The Player and 
Brewster McCloud or MASH or any of those films. Like, he just, stylistically, there is always that through line that is unquestionably a Robert Altman movie. But the topics, the themes, the genres, he liked to spread his wings. So, you know, it makes sense that he would have a horror film in his filmography. And the one he made is Giallo-esque. So, I don't know. If you haven't seen Images yet... Highly recommended, even though we kind of spoiled it. But, like, really, us talking about it isn't going to spoil how weird, creative, dark, bleak, and what really is an excellent mindfuck of a 70s horror film for you to check out. We're going to take a quick commercial break, but we're going to turn more Giallo adjacent films coming up on the Cinematic Void Podcast. Who shot off the goddamn gun? I don't know. Who shot off the goddamn shotgun in the goddamn house? It wasn't loaded, that's for sure. Who loaded it? Well, I didn't load it. You want me dead? Make me dead. You're dead. Now just stay dead. Do I scare you? I am a ghost. Call me just now. No. I thought I heard you talking to someone. Oh, I was talking to myself. I, I do quite often. I do quite often. I do quite often. Welcome back. We've been talking about giallo Jason movies here on the Cinematic Boy Podcast. Up next is... I'd say this one's a little more overt than images. Wouldn't you agree, Nick? Yeah, totally. It's a little more, little more straightforward. Yeah, I mean, but it's, it's also pretty unconventional, too, which we'll get into. It's, it's from 1973. It's directed by Nicholas Rogue, who did Bad Timing, Walkabout... Eureka, Man Who Fell From Earth. It stars Julia Christie and Donald Sutherland. It's based on a short story by Daphne du Maur, who is a favorite of Alfred Hitchcock, who we've already touched upon earlier, who made at least three movies based on her works, including The Birds, Jamaica Inn, and Rebecca. And, of course, we're talking about Don't Look Now. It features amazing cinematography by Anthony Richmond and a score by Pino Donaggio. And to tie it in with the previous film we just discussed, the editor on this movie, Graham Clifford, was also the editor on Images. So, a little full circle early on here. For those of you who haven't seen Don't Look Now, well, again, you should probably stop this podcast and go watch it because it's one of the great 70s psychological horror movies, let alone Giallo Jason movies, let alone just any movie in general. It's one of the great movies. You should fucking see it. Here's a little plot if you haven't. John and Laura Baxter are in Venice when they meet a pair of elderly sisters, one who claims to be a psychic. She insists that she sees the spirit of the Baxter's daughter who recently drowned. Laura is intrigued, but John resists the idea. He, however, seems to have his own psychic flashes, seeing their daughter walk the streets of Venice in a red cloak, as well as Laura and the sisters on a funeral gondola. Hmm, wonder why. So, how is Don't Look Now? Giallo, Jason. Well, let's just dive in there. Location, location, location. Because, obviously, the main location is in Venice, which is in Italy. That's where Giallos are born. 
But not, not Venice Beach. Not Venice Beach. There's no Hulk Hogan or Arnold Schwarzenegger in here, brother. <laughs> Donald Sutherland's not leg dropping a black glove killer or anything. But, you know, the, the real Venice. I guess the Venice Beach is real, but the classic Venice of movies of the 40s and 50s where people were on gondolas and that kind of stuff. Anyway, getting off topic here already. But besides that location, there the the opening takes place in the UK, and it's kind of similar vibe to the countryside of Images. And again, as we talk about Images, a lot of giallos went over the UK and Ireland and used those kind of locations to kind of spice up the productions and kind of made them more like neutral as opposed to overtly Italian, if that makes sense. So the other thing this movie has, which kind of does in images, but this is more obvious because they're pulling bodies out of the fucking Ven- Venice, um, what do you call that, river? C- canal? It's the canal? Yeah, that's what it is. They're canals. God damn it. <laughs> There's a killer running around and they're pulling bodies out of the canal. You also got a murder mystery, and, you know, there's some occult elements. This time, much, much more in your face than images, which was kind of subtly implied. Again, we kind of touched upon this earlier about death premonitions and hallucinations. We get into psychics and that kind of stuff, which comes into play very heavily in this movie. You got a seance scene, you have Donald Sutherland's character having visions and him struggling with his own psychic abilities. There's also the art aspect, which we talked about in Images. You know, Donald Sutherland's character's job is to restore a church. And when you think of Italian churches, it's like regardless of where you stand on religion, those churches are very artful. They're very pretty. You know, I might not give a shit what the religion is, but like as a work of art, those churches are pretty... They're nice to look at, and there's a lot of art in there, so that ties it in. There's also a classic kind of MacGuffin red herring scare going on back to Hitchcock, which is, an, you know, another thing that's carried on through Giallo's, where, like, a piece of the church falls and nearly kills Sutherland's character, where earlier in the movie, Donald Sutherland's character was told by the psychic that he should get the fuck out of Italy because his life's in danger, and he wrongly assumes that this was the premonition, and... Way wrong he was about that. And as we're talking about the church, we can't get past Catholicism, which is a theme that has been locked in and dissected in many, many, many Giallo movies. You know, commentaries or criticism of the Catholic Church. People like Lucio Fulci, who hated the church. You know, he made a whole movie just basically like as a fuck you, which is don't torture a duckling. So... It's it's a specter over a lot of giallos, whether it's overt or not. And, you know, we got to talk about the use of colors. Now, obviously, this is not crazy cinematography, like gel lighting, like, you know, Suspiria or a lot of Baba stuff. But the use of color is very important because a lot of giallos will focus on colors and stuff. And this movie focuses on two colors that are kind of just throughout the movie, which are like red or green or red and green at the same time. Giallos are very stylized in what they do. Another thing that puts Don't Look Now in that little bit of that giallo category, dolls. Giallos tend to use a lot of creepy dolls. They're all over the fucking place in these movies. 
And although that's only one scene, and it's really a recreation of, like, Donald Sutherland going to try to save his daughter who drowns at the beginning. Like, it's basically, like, kind of recreation. He dives in to go saves this doll, which is creepy as fuck. I don't know. It's, again, Jallo's like their dolls and how they're used and that kind of thing. And this just fits in the vein of it. I, I, I We haven't talked enough about uh, the, the death of his daughter in the film I, is one of the, you said effective, is tr- one of the most effective. I mean, that death scene is crazy. And the only other like young child death scene I can think of that, that kind of affected me the same way is maybe like, what's his name in like Pet Cemetery. When those kids die, man, and like, and it propels the film, it's fucked. But, you know, they both deal with grief and how you deal with grief. And obviously, the grief in Don't Look Now, that's the driving narrative because you're getting to see two sides of grief. You got Julie Christie's character and Donald Sutherland's character and how they're dealing with grief and how it's essentially tearing apart their marriage. That is a very underlying thing. And actually, underlying is the wrong word. It's very, very out in the open. Like, that's what's going on along with Sutherland's psychic visions and, like, Julie Christie running to the psychics and being told stuff and, like, just trying to get closure on that grief. And, like, it's... Mm-hmm. Right, they're just unraveling. Yeah, it literally. And, like, that that's, you know... Giallo shares a lot of things with psychological horror, and, like, this fits in there pretty comfortably, I'd say. Now, another thing, which ties in Giallo, but... Actually, not really, but I think it's worth discussing, is Pino Donaggio's score. And it's kind of funny, because Pino's Italian, and he's done scores for countless horror movies in the U.S., and some other Giallo-adjacent films, by you know, mostly directed by Brian De Palma, but he's never really scored any actual Giallos, and especially during the heyday prime of, like, the early to mid-70s, and then a little bit later, the late 70s to early 80s boom that happened. Like, he just didn't score him. I guess because he was already getting money from the U.S. to do, like, things like Taurus Trap and Joe Dante's The Howling and stuff like that. Was that, was Nicholas Rogue, was he Australian? Uh, For some reason, I was thinking that he was. He he is British. The Probably the reason why you yeah. think he's Australian is because of Walkabout. That's why, yep. Okay. Although... Now let's double check before I'm wrong here. <laughs> right on. <laughs> I'm going to do the rare audible just to make sure I'm pretty sure he's British. Yeah. But, but it, it, you're you're correct that it's walkabout is why I think that. So I could be way off. Let's see. Nicholas Rogue. He was born in London, England. So he is British. Gotcha. Okay. So, and, you know, he was a longtime cinematographer before he became a director. Like, he shot a couple of Corman movies. I think oh, Mask of Red Death was one of them. Could be wrong about that. If I'm wrong, I'm just going to leave that one. But I know I know he did, like, one of the um, Roger Corman, like, Poe gothic horrors. I think it's that one. But I've already used my lifeline to make sure he's actually British and not Australian. So we'll go from there. You know, when I'm thinking of Pino Donaggio and his career, like, I actually looked to see what Giallo films he scored, and these are the only ones I could really find. He did the score to Fulci's Black Cat from, in 1981, which, although it's not really a Giallo, I did include it with the January Giallo Marathon I did back in 2020. Was it 2020? Yeah, I guess it was. I can't tell. It's 
was one of the last things I got the screen before everything shut down. He also did the score to the late 80s Giallo throwback, Fan of the Death for director Ruggiero Diodato. And in the 90s, he did the score to Dario Argento's kind of attempt to crack the U.S. market with a sort of high-concept Giallo. Although, it's... It's kind of debatable. I mean, it's Giallo, because there is a Black Glove killer. There's no straight razor. There's this weird guillotine head thing. But Derek Jones was trauma. He did the score to that. That's what I'm trying to say without going over long on him. Another thing that kind of places this in the realm of Giallo is the sex scene. Although, I'll say this, a lot of Giallos, especially early on, like to incorporate artsy sex scenes. And sometimes not so artsy sex scenes. For this one, it's not really kind of titillating as like a lot of the ones in giallo it's artful but it's like it's basically a moment as we already talked about the unraveling of like julie christie and donald sutherland's character and this is one of these rare times that they still have a human connection together which is being able to make love and reason why it's in the movie because nicholas rogue thought like you guys got to do something else because like otherwise you're just gonna be arguing the whole movie and just going deeper deeper dark you got to show that you guys actually loved each other and it's but I, I I do have to mention though that I I, I mean it is a bit uh, sure it's a sex scene in a seventies film but like it's it goes on a little longer than they normally do it's a it's a bit more graphic than they usually are you know it's no it's no Emmanuel in America but it's it's pretty fucking dare I say it's pretty racy even for you know 2021 standards like you don't see this kind of fucking in a movie yeah I mean the the scene bothered Julie Christie's boyfriend at the time Warren Beatty so much that apparently he saw Nicholas Rogue at a party took him outside and punched him in the face <laughs> because, <laughs> what the fuck but, right on. but I mean yeah no it appears they're fucking in this movie well there there like, there's <laughs> there was long standing rumors that like they actually fucked on camera yeah, yeah, yeah. And everyone has, like, basically Anthony Richmond, Nicholas Rogue, Donald Sutherland all said, no, it was just, un- you know, we were just doing a scene. Mm-hmm. I I don't, I I looked up to see if Julie Christie ever said anything about it, but I didn't see anything. But, like, I, it's, it's graphic, but the other thing you got to think about is how it's cut together. It's like this montage where it's like you show them getting ready for their day and then the sex. Mm-hmm. So it's like, kind of like bouncing back and forth so like i think true, th- true it's 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 artful but it's it's graphic yeah <laughs> i guess you're right it is a little more graphic than like most people were probably expecting which is probably why a lot of people thought like well they obviously fucked on camera yeah but according to everyone involved that didn't happen or is that what they want us to think mm-hmm. i don't know let us know your opinion was it a real sex scene or not Hit us up on the socials. A couple other things when I think about this sex scene, because, you know, as we're saying, Giallo's had them. And there's, you know, there's other artful and, like, kind of fetishy ones. And I think of Strange Vice of Mrs. Ward, where, like, Edwidge Fennec's character likes to get cut or have glass thrown on her and that kind of stuff. And I'm not saying this is, like, very... It's not a kinky sex scene. It's just very matter-of-fact and... I guess... I guess kind of graphic. You don't see Little Sutherland, though. Yeah, you don't see what made Kiefer. That's for sure. Let's talk about some similar in the vein giallos that you could put together with. Don't look now. 
First one that came to mind was a couple of Fulci movies, which are Don't Torture Duckling and The Psychic. And mm-hmm. for different reasons. Don't Torture Duckling because of, like, the criticism of the Catholic Church and, like, that kind of stuff in the background, plus child murder. That's where I have the tie-in. And then The Psychic, because in Fulci's a psychic, the character has psychic premonitions, which end up being that character's death. I think, um... Pretty sure Duckling came out the year before Don't Look Now, but Psychic came out later. It should be stated that Don't Look Now definitely had an influence on the Giallos that came after it. For obvious reasons. Because it's like, oh, you can put some prestige behind these movies. So I think there's a lot, little bit of that kind of chase too. Whether they succeed or not, that's really up to you. But there, there's another Giallo which came out... I believe the same the year before Don't Look Now. And it's called Who Saw or Die, which stars George Lazenby and um Sergio Martino favorite Anita Strindberg. They kind of deal with the same things because both deal with the grieving parents and the death of a child. But where um Who Saw or Die kind of differs, it's the parents going looking for the child murderer because there's more murderers happening. Whereas like in Don't Look Now, their daughter drowned. And there's just murderers happening in the background. And because of the red raincoat connection, that's what puts Donald Sutherland into that murder spectrum. That's basically what I got on, like, the giallo Jason part. But, like, a couple things I want to kind of talk about, which, you know, as we mentioned at the beginning of the talk about Don't Look Now, Graham Clifford was the editor on this film as well as Images. And I want to do a little aesthetic comparing and contrast. Just, just for fun. Now... Robert Altman as a director has always been kind of loose, open to improv, experimenting. Like, you know, that's why he does a lot of zooms. He has a lot of overlapping dialogue. A lot of stuff that wasn't in images. But, like, some of those techniques still carried over. And when you think of Nicholas Rogue, he had a very fragmented style, at least at a time, where he likes to deconstruct time. Which you think of that sex scene of how the montage is, like, cutting back and forth in different time, places of time. When Donald Sutherland has those, like, psychic visions... They're kind of cut in. You don't know if it's like a, you know, you don't know it's a premonition until it kind of unfolds. Like, it, that, it's all about the style. And, like, Rogue was very much in, like, creating pure cinema. And he believed in, like, montage editing and, like, kind of stream of conscious filmmaking. You know, as he progressed, it got more aggressive. Like, if you see something like Eureka, the first hour of Eureka, if you haven't seen Eureka, you should. It's Gene Hackman who finds oil or gold. I forget which one in the middle of Alaska... And becomes this millionaire, and then they kill him to get his money. And they kill him in a really, really hilariously violent way. They basically set him on fire with a blowtorch. But that's that, that's for another podcast. But <laughs> but Rogue just had this very stream-of-conscious style and just the way he put things together. So even without Graham Clifford editing, he continued on this path. But the thing I like is that I think what kind of kind of gives these movies kind of a little bit of a, like a sister vibe to each other is probably Graham's contribution to both because they both have lots of misdirection. They have lots of like, is this real? Is this not? What is this? What is reality? Altman's through like the hallucination factor. Don't look now because of the fragment of time and the premonitions, but they kind of go together and they kind of work. Obviously they're two different movies with two different endings and two different styles, but I think there's a weird cohesiveness when you think about both of them together. I don't know if you agree or disagree on that. 
yeah that, absolutely again just more coming from the i i see de palma and hitchcock and all, all these through lines uh throughout so even the next one you know the next one has something something or many things in common with this one I mean, all these movies can be easily interconnected because the two we talked about thus far share an editor. You know, Pino DiNaggio is going to come in and play later. The next movie we're going to talk about is related to this one. The movie in between this and the last, or the next movie and the last one, the fourth one we're discussing, Eyes of Laura Mars, it goes back because there's a tie into images. So all these movies, in a way, are tied together. It's like it's like the six degrees of Kevin Bacon, except for like films, their connection and Giallo-ness. So I don't know. That's why I've been really excited to do this episode. So before we move off, don't look now. What's your final thoughts on this, Nick? Look now. <laughs> look now. <laughs> look now. Don't don't do anything else. Watch this movie. Look now. Yeah, and if you look and you see a person in a red raincoat that's a little short. Just keep moving. Just keep moving. <laughs> keep it pushing. Keep pushing. Otherwise, you might catch a meat cleaver to the neck. Um, <laughs> my final thoughts is like on this movie. It's it's a movie I don't revisit often because I've seen it a lot. But like, I mean, I think you were saying the first time you saw this movie was at the Egyptian, right? I, I did. I, I saw it at the Egyptian uh, on film, I believe. Although I, I don't quote me on that. Uh, Maybe quote me on that. I you you did because I think it might have been one of the two times we had the BFI's really excellent print of it. Which it, I remember being totally beautiful, um, and yeah, I did. I didn't even know what to expect. I just I just went into it and I fucking loved it. And it's it was one of the first when I started collecting Criterion's in the past like six months. That was one of the first ones I bought. And and now it's out of print. Got a collector's item there, Hoss. There we go. That's what I'm looking for. As I was saying, my final thoughts is like, I, it's not a movie I revisit often, but when I do, I just kind of get sucked in because it's a really masterfully constructed movie. You know, the giallo elements kind of, you know, take it over the top. You know, again, I don't know if Rogue had seen any of them, but like, you know, you're shooting at Venice, you're using an Italian crew for the most part. He might have seen some, but who really knows? I mean, again, this could be a spillover from Hitchcock and all that, as you've already stated. But we're going to take another quick commercial break. But when we return, we're going to keep being adjacent to Giallo here on the Cinematic Void Podcast. They say seeing is believing, but only a split second of time separates the past from the future. The present is crushed between them. A thin thread of life in a skein of death. Laura! Laura! Where are you? Who are you looking at? I don't know what's happening. are warned. Things are not what they seem. Don't look now. Welcome back. We've been talking about giallos, but not exactly giallos. Films that are adjacent to giallos here on the Cinematic Void podcast. 
Up next is, not only is this film giallo adjacent, but I'd say it's what I would call a proto-slasher. And what I mean by proto-slasher is any movie that came out before Halloween. That kind of, because once Halloween dropped, that's when the slasher boom came. And anything that came before that was just kind of like building up to it. So things like this, Black Christmas, even Psycho kind of part of the heritage. The, the film was from 1976. It stars Linda Miller, Mildred Clinton, Paula Shepard, and in her film debut, Brooke Shields. That's right, we're talking about Alice Sweet Alice by director Alfred Soule. Now, the film was originally titled Communion, and it was later released as Holy Terror, and briefly for maybe a week somewhere in some drive-in in the middle of nowhere, The Mask Murders. So it's had a few different title changes. I think when you get it on Blu-ray now, the main title card they have is Communion, or Holy Terror. Or else we else. I don't know. I own the Arrow disc, which I think has all three fucking titles on it. But if you haven't seen Alice Sweet Alice, again, correct that shit as soon as possible. So here's a little plot for you. In 1961, a divorced Catholic couple's life is turned upside down when one of their two adolescent daughters is suspected of her younger sister's brutal murder during her first communion. The film also has an extra bit of notoriety for being the, as we already mentioned, the film debut of Brooke Shields who basically, because when she got famous, this movie is rebranded a bunch of times to put her as the star, even though she's literally in it like five minutes and she's a child. So it's a little weird of a flex to be like, you like Blue Lagoon? Check out Brooke Shields and Holy Terror. A- am I wrong? That Does it say in the title card, though, introducing Brooke Shields? Or, or did I see that like in a poster? Maybe later in a poster. Her at- She's just listed in the credits normally. There's someone else <laughs> in the credits has it introduced introducing kind of thing but like also credits the credits are amazing yeah the opening credits are fucking fantastic oh you're talking about the um the the weird like it's like a woman wearing a weird veil over like her whole body and like a crown maybe a crown and like a bunch of weird shit happening it looks like a a, i don't know it looks some kind of weird like goth metal record cover (laughs) that would maybe be whack as a record cover but as the opening credits to this film amazing yeah and it's like almost like a weird stop motion effect because it raises the cross dagger up and all that. Totally. When the title yeah. hits, like it, it's a, it's a fucking great title for any movie, like title sequence. And I think they did it for all three titles. It has that same imagery, so it's unique that that was the one carryover, not the film title, just that imagery. So let's get into why Alice Sweet Alice is giallo adjacent, and I think right off the bat. The main reason it is, is because of the inspiration it pulls from the film we just talked about, Don't Look Now. Now, director Alfred Soule has claimed that he's never seen a giallo before making Alice, which could be true. And I think, you know, all the giallo-ness that comes out of it is definitely by proxy of his love and inspiration from Don't Look Now, as well as Hitchcock influences and that kind of stuff. You know, all the things that Giallo pulls from, which we've already talked about, that when other filmmakers pull from, it sometimes ends up giving it that Giallo appearance. You know, in both films, you have a killer who's mistaken as a child. In Don't Look Now, it's a dwarf. In this one, it's a crazy lady who's looking for, you know, purity of getting rid of sinners, you know. And we were talking something about on the break about... The Killer and Don't Look Now, and I know we're kind of going back, but I think it's worth talking about, which is, you know, one killer has a red raincoat, one has a yellow, but the one point you were making, 
that kind of piqued my interest and in why we're kind of retreading a bit here is that was the killer in Don't Look Now not real? Was it part of the hallucination or the premonition or whatever that was going on that Donald Sutherland was seeing? And what are your thoughts on it since this is something you brought up? It just it, it ends up being just kind of so absurd. It's like this old lady little person like and it just kind of comes out of nowhere and so that's why I, that's that's really what made me think that it was like you know in his unraveling and his end was even that part of a, a figment of his imagination maybe he did die but is that how he died is that who the murderer actually was etc um it just it it, it left that very open-ended and i was i was definitely curious of what you uh what you made of the end there i mean i i think it was real i think the choice of a dwarf killer i i've never read the short story that it's based on but like it might be from that but like you know at you know don't look now and to an extent alice deals with grief and loss and the thing about don't look now is that it's a movie about grief and you get no closure and you really don't get no closure the second that Donald Sutherland takes a fucking like meat cleaver to the neck. Man, Don't Look Now is a real downer. Now that I think about yeah. it. <laughs> and I guess like, you know, Images is a downer. This one's a bit of a downer too, but I I think they deserve downers. It's not nihilism for the sake of nihilism, which, you know, Jallo's kind of treading the nihilism too. There's, you know, sometimes there's goofy endings where like everyone, you know, catch the killer and everyone leaves on a speedboat and then there's other ones where everyone's just left broken life's destroyed nowhere to go from here you know just like real life just like real life (laughs) you know don't look now is not really a a fantasy movie it's a reflection of what's going on in life at any point a dwarf with a meat cleaver could take you out watch your step tables turn people learn that's it. <laughs> uh, oh, yeah. That shout out to E Town for the reference. That is only for Nick and I. But anyway, no remorse, no regret. Yeah, <laughs> just just keep on going with it. But as we were always saying, you know, you had rain. You know, you have killers in raincoats. One red. The one in Alice wears yellow. And this, as you were talking about when you saw don't or um, don't look now at the Egyptian. So this kind of brings back to something I tried to do in 2017. So Will Morris, who used to work for the American Cinematheque, had, was working on bringing over a print. Or he wasn't working on a print. There was a print tour coming through the States of the BFI, British Film Institute's like 35mm print of Don't Look Now. And he was arranging it, and he brought it to me first, and we are talking with programming how to do it, and I originally wanted to do a double feature of Don't Look Now and Alice Sweet Alice. And you and I had two co-workers who were on the short side, Kat and Adira, shout out to both of them. And had we had done that screening, I was going to buy raincoats, one red, one yellow, and have them just stand up there while I was doing the intro. But Exploitation. Exploitation. Hey, man, that's all I deal in is exploitation. <laughs> the AC, because of the cost of bringing over Don't Look Now, was kind of like, well, we'll just do it as a single show. So that didn't happen. Because originally it was going to be part of January Giallo was that screening. But, you know, that didn't happen. But you got to see Don't Look Now, which is an extraordinary film. And that print is beautiful. Mm-hmm. Like, it's... 
I hope it comes back the, around again because there's no the, that red raincoat really pops, yeah. you know. Yeah, <laughs> it really pops. It will haunt your dreams and nightmares. <laughs> but anyway, back to the uh, the yellow raincoat. Yeah. So I didn't end up showing "Don't Look Now" and Alice together, but I think the next year, or maybe actually no, it made it might have been the same year. I can't remember when I did this, but I actually did a screening of Alice. Sweet Alice on 35mm with Lucille Fulci's Don't Torture Duckling. And it kind of melded into a anti-Catholicism double feature because both movies are heavily critical of the Catholic Church. I was actually talking to the director of Alice, um, Alfred Soule, who now works as, I believe, either a production designer or something like that in the film industry. He's still working, which is great. And he was going to try to... I think he was working on a Marvel movie of all things. And he was going to try to like work it out so he could come out for the screening. Didn't happen because he was still working, but he was kind enough to shoot a video intro that we played in front of Alice. The other thing I want to mention is where I give a shout out to Will, give another shout out to Will. So when I did the introduction for Alice and Don't Torture Duckling, I dressed up as a priest, Will dressed up as altar boy, and then we took a collection plate and passed it around the theater. And, and to my surprise... I think we got like 50 bucks out of it. <laughs> I honestly didn't think we were getting anything. I, I, it was just a bit. I was expecting like a, like Will's like, I had to pull it because people were like throwing real money in. And it's like, no, no, this is just a joke. But then it's at the point you can't give people's money back, but you just kind of take it away. So like, I don't know. <laughs> they already paid to come to see a movie. We don't need to take your money for a fake church offering or whatever. <laughs> but whatever. Did, but did, did you get? Did anyone uh, donate anything that wasn't that wasn't money? But like, put did anything? Anybody put anything cool in there? Maybe some, you know, some mushrooms. No. Nah. No. Nah. <laughs> other other contraband. No. Nah. You know, weapons. No, nah, it was all money. Some of it was like change, but then like there's like some, <laughs> there's some fives. There's a twenty in there. It's just like. Man, guys, it's just a bit generous, yeah. Right. <laughs> and then maybe questions like, maybe I should do church offerings in front of all void screenings from here on out. Everyone should tithe ten percent to the void. <laughs> ah, something to think about when we reopen here. Back to I guess Alice, sweet Alice proper, as we've kind of segued and you know the comparisons with um, Don't Look Now and the screening I did. Let's talk about those murder sequences, because they do, they're definitely Giallo-esque, but they also teeter towards really brutal slasher. And I'm not talking about, like, the Halloween-style slasher. I'm talking about the stuff that came after that, your Friday 13th, The Prowler, My Bloody Valentine, like, really graphic violence. Like, they're extremely graphic for coming out in 76. Means, means spirited. Oh, yeah. Straight up. Absolutely. Nothing like a giant fucking just the biggest knife in your kitchen, just ripping through somebody's flesh. It's 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 brutal, man. I mean, yeah, and they're it's really well done, and I I'm pretty sure they didn't have a lot of money to do it, but like, goddamn, it was effective. And the reason why I'm mentioning proto slasher as in more of the terms of like these kills because like they're not really POV murders. You know, you definitely see. Raincoat, that creepy fucking mask, that translucent mask. And you can actually kind of say the same about Umber Lindsay's eyeball because you have another killer in a raincoat. This one red. I guess if you're in Italy, it's red. If you're in New Jersey, it's yellow. That's, I don't, I don't know if that's I, for, a, I, I forgot about that one. Yeah, totally. The fucking raincoat, man. Yeah. It's creepy. 
Yeah, so, like, I think these kills are, like, a little more in line to Eyeball, except no disrespect to Umberto, but, like, I think the kills in Alice Sweet Alice are, like, above and beyond what's in Eyeball. Oh, yeah. And the murders are really painful, which is reminiscent to the method of murder Argento used in Deep Red, because all those deaths in that movie are extremely painful. You get someone getting scolded with hot water. You get the psychic, which kind of ties in with all the psychs we talk about, the psychic Deep Red getting hit with the hatchet and then, like, crashing through the window and hanging out, just impaled on glass and stuff like that. And then you get that one guy who gets his gets grabbed by the head and gets his teeth jabbed into, like, the like kind of um, fireplace mantle or whatever it is, or the desk. I think they'd move around the room or whatever in Deep Red. But, like, the murders in Alice are equally as painful. And I think that's why they're so effective. Again, I say, like, uh, with the butcher knife thing, it, it makes me think of it, it's what they say about, like, real-life killings even. It's just, like, when it's done with a knife like that, like there's some like premeditation to it. like it, it's like there's something so much more personal about it and and so like you said it, it's not pov but the way it shows the mask and the fucking raincoat coming at you with this fucking knife it's pov in that sense yeah. that like you're not that it's not the killer it's the victim and you're the fucking victim it's yeah. coming at you and then you see and then the camera turns boom and you see that knife go in yeah i mean another thing that kind of fits into the giallo staple end of the murder scenes is they're all themed because this is punishment mm-hmm. for sin. That, oh shit. So, okay. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. a lot of giallos have a theme to why people are getting killed or if they're getting killed, they're killed to a theme. It's, you know, slashers don't really do this, but giallos rely on this heavily. And, you know, if we're going to talk about murders, we got to talk about that staircase murder. What? Mm-hmm. That that is a fucking all timer. It is nasty. It is brutal. It is painful. Mm. Oh yeah. Again, just that raincoat coming at you, man. It is nasty. Between those, between those, the bars. Yeah. In the stairs, you know. <sighs> yeah. Oh, fuck yeah. <laughs> it it's so good. It's so fucking good. And it's like I'm not trying to say like, oh, I enjoy murder, but I'm just saying as a sequence and presented like. If you're watching horror movies and you're watching giallos and slashers, you're looking at murder sequences, and this one is just so expertly done. It's kind of it's kind of crazy to think that Alfred Soule didn't make another like kind of slasher or horror movie like this. He kind of had a nasty streak in him, and then he made a movie where a woman lives on an island with a giant ape, Tanya's Island, and a kind of a slasher horror movie parody, Pandemonium. But he never went back to the viciousness of this movie, which, you know, it's a shame, but maybe it's for the best because that kind of lets Alice stand on its own. Because, you know, there's a lot of slashers that came out after it that never were as effective as this movie. Well, another to its credit and again, playing off of all those same tropes he may not have seen. He may have claimed to not have uh, been influenced by Giallo or have seen them. But the misdirection in this one is he's good at it, man. Like, like there was multiple times like when and and so it reveals who the killer is, you know, maybe two thirds into it or something like that. And uh, not who I thought it was. No, (laughs) you know, (laughs) but when you find out, it's like, oh, shit. Like, yeah, it's it's actually surprising because it's just like, you know, 
I mean, I think early. I mean, if you had you, this was the first time you watched it when you watched it. So yeah, totally. It's been in my field of vision for a long time. Uh, it's it has a very iconic. You know, you like even if you haven't seen it, you know the mask and the raincoat. Yeah, like it's something that's like a it's kind of a cult thing that's like eh, it's like just bubbling underground there. Yeah. Um, but so I've always been aware of it, but I'm, yeah, I'm glad I checked it out. Yeah. It, the other thing with Alice, which is it's only been the last few years that's been finally available on Blu-ray thanks to Arrow. When I first saw it, it was Anchor Bay had put it out on VHS and then DVD. And then some other company ended up putting it out on DVD at some point. So it was like a weird licensing thing. It's kind of funny, and this is, you know, film programming nerd talk here that I'm going to throw in. Like, theatrical rights belong to Warner Brothers because they distributed it at some point or bought, maybe they bought out the distributor that had it. So Warner has it, but like home video, it's just been floating around. So, like, a little tip for programmers. Sometimes studios who put out blu-rays don't own the- theatrical rights to movies so it's mm. so a little tip but back to the giallo-ism or giallo-jasonism of alice sweet alice and you know one of my favorite things going back to images we get another dummy drop oh yeah and it's a good one too so you know Hitting those, hitting those things. Even Alfred Soul might not see in Giallo, but he's hitting those marks pretty damn well. And the other thing, which we've already touched upon, is the Catholicism angle, or rather the criticism of Catholicism. And I know we talked about a little bit earlier in regards to um, Don't Torture a Duckling in this film, but, like, you know, Alfred Soul was a Catholic. He's no longer a Catholic. He We'll get. I'm gonna explain why he's no longer a Catholic here, but he had previously directed an adult film called Deep Sleep. Not sure if that's inspiration for your yours and Tony's old band, but no, uh, that's uh, a Poison Idea song is yeah. actually where that came from. But uh, maybe Poison Idea are familiar with this? Who knows? But he made this movie. He got obscenity charges against him in New Jersey. And the, once the Catholic Church found out that he had made it, they excommunicated him so he could no longer be Catholic. Hmm. Which is pretty strong punishment for making a porn movie that's just trying to make a money, or just make some money, unlike a lot of the crimes the Catholic Church has actually committed and allowed. And he got kicked out of heaven. He got kicked out of heaven. But he's better for it because he got to make <laughs> Alice Sweet Alice. Because Oh, yeah. I mean, which is which is heaven. Yeah, it's great. Yeah, that's <laughs> the real heaven. <laughs> I just found that interesting. It's like you thought Fulci had some rage against the Catholic Church. Well, he never got excommunicated. That's like the ultimate punishment. It's what they do in Russia when like they kick you out of the country, they excommunicate you and send you to Siberia. Except I guess Alfred didn't have it that bad. He just excommunicated him and he just went all, went all on his day. Made more he was movies. still in New Jersey, though. He's st- still in New Jersey. <laughs> I mean, I guess if you say that, he's already been excommunicated then. Shout out to our friends in New Jersey. Hello, who, friends. Who are <laughs> who? probably not going to be our friends much longer after this. A <laughs> uh, couple other things as we're wrapping up the giallo this of this movie. Um, family dysfunction and child neglect. Both things have popped up here and there in Giallos. You know, you have dysfunctional families. Sometimes it's the family trauma that causes the killer to be born. 
In this one, it's the family trauma and the child neglect that makes everyone think this little girl's fucking whacking people when it's someone else. And lastly, we kind of hit upon it already, but similar giallos, obviously, Don't Torture Duckling. You know, those two are probably thematically the closest. Both have child murder in it. Both have huge criticism of the Catholic Church. And, you know, that's essentially why I paired them together when I did that screening. Another one you can throw in there is um, a movie called Bloodstained Shadow, which has another, like, Catholic Church through line in it. And it's not as it's not as close in theme as Duckling is to Alice, but if you're doing a triple feature, you would put that at the end. It's it's a good movie to watch. It's actually a really good giallo too, and has a has a really good score that was written by Stelvo Cipernati, but actually performed by Goblin, which is another reason to check it out. But has nothing to do with Alice, Sweet Alice. Just throwing that out there for you if you want to watch some Bloodstained Shadow and need a, another reason to. And I guess before we wrap things up, here's a cool little fun fact that Bill Lustig, director of Maniac, Maniac Cop 1 through 3, Vigilante, and who also runs Blue Underground, was a he's a friend of Alfred Souls, and he actually worked on this movie. He worked on the effects, and he, I think he was a cameraman as well. So it's also why this movie ended up at Anchor Bay originally, because Bill was friends with them. They brought it over, and they did the first real restoration on it after it was kind of in limbo. I'll say this kind of odd cinematography in this one. Like a really odd framing and weird, like the way that it kind of like zooms up and down in certain shots. A lot of weird, weird stuff going on. You know, I think it's unconventional because like they're shooting a horror movie in New Jersey with no, no real money, not a really big cast, you know. Their biggest star got famous years later. So it, it, I think some of that has to do with how unconventional it was. But I think it all works, you know? Mm-hmm. Totally. Well, Nick, what are your final thoughts on Alice, Sweet Alice? That was great. I am i don't know why I waited so long to watch it. I'm, not, I'm glad that I did. And uh, I just want to give a shout-out to the Catholic Church because I think there, there's a lot of great films that, uh, without their influence, they never would have happened. And this is just another one on that pile. Uh, the Catholic Church has ruined a lot of lives and made film much better for it. Yep. I mean, you wouldn't have the devils. You wouldn't have, like, half the nunsploitation. Not even half. A hundred percent of the nunsploitation movies that were coming out of Italy and Spain. You know, it's good the Catholic Church pissed so many people off because you got great art out of it. And I guess my closing thought on Alice is kind of reiterate what you said it's it's a great movie i think a lot of people know about it and seen it but i still think it's a little too under the radar for its own good and and i'm hoping if you haven't watched these or even if you already have like go revisit alice because it's it's a stellar film regardless of what you feel about its jowliness it's definitely like it's a proto slasher that deserves more credit than i feel like it gets hey Either check out or go revisit Alice Sweet Alice sometime soon. But we're going to take another quick commercial break. But we'll return. We're going to have some eyes on some more Giallo Jason films on the Cinematic Void Podcast. Brooke Shields. In holy terror. Alice was too old to play with dolls and too young to make love. Brooke Shields as you've never seen her before. She was too beautiful to play with boys and too young to play with men. So Alice began to play 
with death. She's made a repeated request that the kids see a psychiatrist. She has a knack of making things look like accidents. dolls, no more toys. Alice only plays with bodies. It's too late to save her. Unnatural love and unnatural death. Brooke Shields in Holy Terror. It's too late for prayers. Welcome back. We've been talking about Giallo Jason films here on the Cinematic Void podcast, but this time we're going to take a trip to Mars. Well, not the planet Mars. More like with, with Elon? No, no. Ah, ah there you go. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. Well, you don't need a Tesla to go to this Mars. It's a film from 1978. It's directed by Irvin Kirshner, who directed a little movie from some franchise that some of you might have heard of called Star Wars. That movie was Empire Strikes Back. He also directed the Robocop 2. So. His career is kind of all over the place. The film stars Faye Dunaway, Tommy Lee Jones, Brad Dwarf, Renee Aubergeois, who we already talked about in Images. Uh, I keep getting him confused with uh, Harry from Night Court, <laughs> uh, which is probably a, a pretty obscure reference, I guess. But uh, I don't know if anyone remembers Night Court. I don't know. I guess I, I and then I Googled it and Harry from Night Court is maybe much younger. But uh, I don't know. Sorry. Sorry, Renee. <laughs> I mean, he, he, he pro- I mean, if he was still alive, he would probably take those royalty checks. I don't know if you... I guess Richard Mole's probably still getting some checks from Night Court at this point. <laughs> but I guess we should talk about... There's one other actor I want to mention that's actually in this movie we're discussing, which is Raul Julia, who I believe you had a pretty big reaction when you saw him in this one. Uh, holy shit, it's fucking Gomez in the 70s. <laughs> yeah. I guess most people know Raul Julia's Gomez Adams from those Adams Family movies, and probably just a, just a handsome motherfucker, forever. Ever was he also M Bison in that Street Fighter movie? You you got me. You stumped me there. <laughs> I I think he was. Believe it or not, I haven't seen the Street Fighter movie. I haven't either. I just know he was in it with Van Damme. But you know, we're not we're not talking about Street Fighter. We're talking about Eyes of. That's Lo- the- Next episode is the Street Fighter episode. Yeah. <laughs> uh, enough about video games. We're talking about Eyes of Laura Mars, which, you know, th- I think out of all the movies we're going to talk about, this might be the most dead-on Giallo comparison. And before we get into that, there's a couple other people that worked on this movie I think we should mention. Uh, the film's original story and early draft of screenplay was by some guy... You may have heard of, if you're a fan of Cinematic Void. John Carpenter, obviously the John Carpenter, directed Halloween, The Fog, Escape from New York. The film was then rewritten by David Zlig Goodman, who also wrote Straw Dogs and Logan's Run. 
We're talking about a lot of very big contrasts here. There's a big difference between Logan's Run and, like, Straw Dogs. Quite a pedigree, though. It is. The film was edited by Michael Kahn, who would go on to be Steven Spielberg's longtime editor and work on projects produced by Spielberg and obviously edited most of his movies. For those who haven't seen Laura Mars and her eyes, obviously, Laura Mars can see through the eyes of a serial killer as he commits his crimes. She contacts the police and with the aid of a police detective tries to stop the killer. But first, they have to figure out who it is. So... How's this movie Giallo, Jason? Well, the plot itself is straight out of a Giallo, or sounds like a Giallo, just on paper. This movie, probably more so than, except for maybe the last movie we're going to talk about, it's kind of universally hailed as a, you know, the quintessential closest to being an American version of a Giallo that came out in the 70s. And I think we can give a lot of credit to that to John Carpenter, and whatever remains of his initial script. The reason why I'm saying some of this giallo-ness comes from Carpenter is because he's, you know, admitted to being a fan of Dario Argento. And, you know, if you listen to the old Halloween commentary with him and Deborah Hill, like, Deborah Hill basically says, like, one of the biggest influences on Halloween was Dario Argento's Deep Red, from Carpenter's score to, like, you know, just the kind of murder mystery the format, you know? I, I'm not saying Halloween's, like, operates as a giallo because it doesn't for a lot of reasons but obviously the the through line between giallo to slasher is definitely there and you know carpenter was also a big fan of psycho which was another big influence on halloween which you know kind of carries over in this a little bit not in the same way a little bit of the split personality stuff but we'll talk about that in a little bit so what happened to john carpenter's original script well, originally he had sold the story script to producer Jack H. Harris, who had produced Carpenter's first film, or not really his first film, it became his first film because it was actually his USC thesis film. Jack Harris liked it enough, gave him money to turn into a feature-length film, so that's why Dark Star became John Carpenter's first movie. Harris loved the script. He was showing it around because he was going to independently produce it, but he showed it to another producer friend of his, John Peters, who loved it so much that he optioned the movie for his then-girlfriend, Barbara Streisand, to star in. Mm. Streisand eventually passed because she wasn't really into the kinky nature of the story, but she did contribute to it still. She sings the, you know, the main theme of the movie, which is Prisoner. And it was a modest hit for her. It's kind of weird to think Giallo, Barbara Streisand. Not ever in my life did I figure, like, that would all be in a sentence together. But Babs. Babs was ready to rip with that track. So with Streisand out of the picture, they brought in Faye Dunaway, who was coming off her Academy Award winning performance in Network. And while the studio still liked the script, studios got a studio and like, so they brought in David Zalig Goldman to do a rewrite. This is what Carpenter said about the finished version of the film. I don't necessarily agree with his assessment, but I can understand why he feels this way because, like, you know, he might have felt like he had a better version in there. He might have. I don't know. I still think the movie's really, really good, but, you know, let's hear what Carpenter had to say. It wasn't a pleasant experience. The original script was very good. But it got shat upon. I mean, that that alone sounds like a John Carpenter quote anyway, but... <laughs> now that we got the, the script history out of the way, what's some other ways that makes this movie giallo Well, you got a black glove killer. 
And you got killer POV. And you get killer POV going through um, Laura Mars' eyes because she's seeing the murders happen. You get some inventive kills thrown in there too. Like, you know, it the murders are really well done. There might not be as graphic or as violent as, say, Alice Sweet Alice, but I still think they're pretty well done. The other kind of pushing this into giallo territory is Laura's a fashion photographer. And if you watch enough giallos, there's a lot of fashion stuff that happens into it. You know, like, especially the early 70 ones, everyone's stylish. Like, everyone's, like, wearing, like, I don't want to say designer, but, like, hippie chic and, like, you know, different looks. But, like, everyone looks like they're dressed to go to a party at any point in the movie. Regardless if they're just, like, walking to go get a fucking glass of milk out of the fridge or something like that. And, you know, there's plenty of, as I said, giallos that touch upon fashion, fashion photography. There's obviously the big one being Mario Bava's Blood and Black Lace. There's some of it in Black Belly the Tarantula, and there's a lot of it in Strip Dude for Your Killer. So, fashion, very integral to a lot of giallos. They even, I guess they use the title, or, you know, there's either a magazine or a book that's hers you know, a fashion magazine, fashion book called The Eyes of Laura Mars that has, like, that's basically, like, the poster art is the cover of the book. Yeah, I mean, it's well done. It's, like, it, it's funny. When you see that first shot of the book, I, I think they leave out the Laura. It just says The Eyes of Mars on it, which is... Oh, okay. Even more kind of weird and artsy kind of thing. But, like, it's better than the title font that they throw up at, at for the actual credits. That's something I wanted to talk about. I feel like the only title sequence that's really good in any of these movies is Alice Sweet Alice. And that includes the last one we're talking about. Because the, they're just kind of like, you know, Robert Altman's images. And, like, I actually posted on Instagram and my stories, and I think I also posted on Twitter, all the title cards for all these movies that we're discussing. And I was kind of struck by just, like, how plain and boring all those title cards are. Yeah, most of them were just text on a black background. And, you know, it doesn't really sell the film. I guess I don't know what kind of, you know... I think of, you know, Deep Red had black text title cards, but you also had that driving goblin score, and you had, like, a kind of a little bit of intermission in the middle of the credits when you have the flashback to the murder that spawns what happens in the movie kind of thing. But, like, yeah, it's just, like... Maybe it's just the 70s thing of just, like, throw up some fucking text over the screen or just a black title card or something like that, but... That that was something like I never really realized, but just like kind of looking at it, it's like, huh, you know, kind of talking about Laura's art and her photography, you know, her art is violent and, you know, in the movie with, you know, within the movie, like it was called exploitive to women, which is, you know, funny enough criticism because that's levied against countless giallos all the time, you know, like this movie's misogynist and whatnot. And I don't think her art is like, yeah, it's kind of like you know, artsy. I think Helmut Lang was one of the people that, like, contributed photos to it. If not him, like, another, like, kind of big, like, photographer at the time in the 70s. It's kind of interesting because, like, it's like this meta-criticism in the middle of the movie, which is a criticism that gets levied against Jallows. The other thing, and we've, I think this, we didn't talk about in Alice because it didn't really pertain to it, but the previous two movies talked about images and Don't Look Now, you had psychic abilities and premonitions, and this movie goes right back in there. God mm-hmm. damn it. Giallos love their psychics. Think about the psychic in Deep Red, 
who also can see through the eyes of killer and gets the vision of like, oh, I know what you did kind of thing, and then gets whacked because of that. Laura can see what the killer's doing, but doesn't know who the killer is, which kind of comes into play. And, you know, you get visions, memories, that kind of stuff. So, again, going back to that, those psychic tropes. I wonder if, um, you know, if the 70s were just like an era in general where in culture, uh, you know, that whole just like terror reading, uh, psychic mind reader, was that just like uh, prevalent in the culture or was that, you know, or was that just specifically like aping on like Giallo theme? Like, was that just something that was kind of, you know, in the 80s, it was quicksand. <laughs> <laughs> but in the 70s it was psychics and tarot cards and well you know that bled into the 80s as well obviously but uh but i have a feeling that was heavy in culture at the time it, i'm guessing it had to be although like there's been plenty of psychics and you know seances because like if you go back to like the 20s and 30s there's those famous Ooh. seance photos where they have ectoplasm and stuff and like you know some of them have been proven faked others haven't so i think there's always they're, been they're real they're all real yeah, let's just lean on that. They're all real. But, you know, there's always been... Culture has always been interested in the paranormal and psychics. Mm-hmm. And a lot of it is fear of death, fear of the unknown, that kind of stuff. And I think in the 70s, when you're coming post-Manson murders, coming out of Vietnam, you're looking for answers. And obviously, the hippie culture had pretty much been 187 yeah, the, the, at that point. Right, the, the death of it. Yeah, totally with manson and, and kent state and all that stuff it was the end of the 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 60s the hippie culture but what you were getting coming out of that is like a lot of the new age culture which had been around same time but like it was mm-hmm. becoming more you know it's like a lot of hippies went more new age and like gotten the crystals and stuff like that and less about free love and fucking smoking grass all the time although i'm sure they still did all of that within the new age movement but I think just around the world, people have always been intrigued by the idea of like getting a tarot reading and this fear of getting a bad tarot reading. I don't know if you've ever actually got a real tarot reading, but like I have. Uh, your wife Morgan has offered, has reached out and offered to do tarot readings for me. And guess what? I won't do it. I mean, <laughs> I won't do it. I'm scared of it. Well, I mean, there's nothing to be scared about. I mean, what a tarot reading is. I know we're getting off topic here, but what a tarot reading is, is each card's a mirror. It's just a reflection. Yeah, yeah ex- exactly. No. no. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to, I don't, I don't want to look in that mirror. I mean, at the end of the day, if you, if you get a bad tarot reading, you actually have time to change it because it's saying if you continue yeah. on the path you're on now, this is where you're going to end up. But okay. if you make changes in your life or you do something different or it's like something. So, is, so, tar- so the tarot still, the tarot operates on free will. Yeah. It's hmm. like. Okay. I hadn't considered that. I, I, I like that. Okay. It's, it's not destiny. It's like basically what a tarot reading is, is where you're at now. But, you know, the way movies in a lot of places portray it, it's all. It's just like, a crystal ball. This is what's happening. Yeah. And or whatever. You tar- but, right. That's, that's not the case. Okay. You know, the, the cliche is pulling the death card, which the death card in tarot doesn't represent death. It represents, like, a new beginning kind of thing. But, you know, how many times have you seen a character get the death card in a fucking any movie, and they're like, oh, fuck, I'm, I'm cursed, or something like that. Yeah. Either that, or it's just the fool, the fool, the fool, yeah. the fool. I'm fucked. Well, no, actually, the fool, <laughs> the, the fool is actually the first card of the tarot, and... I know we're getting off topic here, but like, <laughs> quite, quite, 
yeah but the, <laughs> but, but, but the fool represents like you know it's like it's like a baby you can mold the baby to be whatever you can like you know oh okay i dig it right on cool it's it's obviously the fool has completely ignorant to its surroundings it's there to learn that's why it's the but, fool but 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 malleable nonetheless yeah. yeah okay okay i mean obviously there's tarot cards you don't want to see like you don't want to see the tower which means it's like shit's about to fall down you're at the restart re redo a lot of stuff 9-11 yeah terror predict <laughs> terror predicted 9-11 years before <laughs> many many years ago <laughs> three to four five hundred years ago whenever like the first terror car was made anyway back to this movie <laughs> i mean it's relevant because we're talking about like psychics and stuff but getting past the the psychic part of it you know this movie also has a lot of red herrings a lot of misdirection you know both classic staples of the giallo and you know also coming from german creamies which were influenced by agatha christie and edgar wallace and other murder mysteries and of course you can go back and look at hitchcock you can look at film noir you can look at german expressionism a lot of stuff is just like just constantly flowing through to the giallo speaking of red herrings there there's actually a really great one and it's brad dwarf in this movie like he's set up to be the obvious killer which, it's just, it's so directed that it has to be him. And when it isn't, it's just like, oh shit, you know? No relation to uh, Steven Dorff. No, not at all. But Brad Dorff does have a daughter who's been in a franchise he's probably more closely associated, which is the Child's Play series. Because, oh, okay. yeah, Brad Dorff's the voice of Chucky, which is... Oh, no shit, cool. Yeah, but... Which is why people forget how grave an actor Brad Dorff is. Just watch him in, like, John Huston's Wise Blood or even Exorcist 3, which I loaned you a copy, like, six months ago that's sitting on your shelf, man. I mean, I've seen Exorcist 3, but I haven't seen the director's cut. More power to uh. you. <laughs> Just coming back is Brad Dorff's an incredible actor, and he's really great in this movie. And, like, I think a lesser actor was the red herring. It wouldn't work. Because there's something about innocence and creepiness and all that that works in. Like, he just... And it's because Brad Dorff is so good as this red herring with his, like, weird, like, shit beard. Like, it's... You know, I forget he has a beard half the time because it's, like, so patchy in this movie. No, dude, he's totally looking like a fucking hide from that 70s show. <sighs> I mean, that's another way to, like... Well, especially now, that would probably carry over <laughs> to be, like... That would be a total red herring because, <laughs> yeah, Hyde's going to end up in a prison cell just like Brad Dorff's character in Exorcist 3, except he he deserves it. And <laughs> eh, we'll leave it at that. But back to Brad Dorff, who is a great, upstanding human being, unlike the person that plays Hyde <laughs> from that 70s show. You know, it his his performance is so good in this movie which is how, why the twist, the killer reveal, actually works. And let's just throw it out here. Well, this is the spoiler, so if you haven't seen this movie you want to, pause it right here. Otherwise, it's spoiling time, bitches. Basically, it sets it up flawlessly and leads into Tommy Lee Jones's cop character being the killer. Check it out. First, you find out that Tommy Lee Jones used to be young, and then you find out he's the fucking killer, bro. <laughs> you know, it's weird when you think about it, because I think 
probably like you, the first time I heard Tommy Lee Jones was because of The Fugitive, which was like 93 or something like that. Fugitive, but like really, I think of like fucking, uh, fucking Men in Black. Yeah. Even. Yeah, because like he didn't, he was, he was a character actor, but he didn't really hit those star roles until way in his career. Because like he was in a ton of 70s stuff. He was in Rolling Thunder. He was in this movie. And, you know, funny enough, kind of get off track here, like, John Carpenter wrote two scripts for movies that he ended up not directing. One of them is this movie. The other one is a movie called Black Moon Rising. And coincidentally enough, both of those movies star Tommy Lee Jones. Is that a werewolf movie? No, it's a Black Moon Rising. I think Black Moon's like some fancy car that gets stolen that Tommy Lee Jones' character hid money in, so he has to go find the car. It also stars Linda Hamilton. Don't put Moon in the title if it's not a werewolf movie. Yeah, that that's a that's a, that, that's a that's a big sin right there. But again, get back to Tommy Lee Jones, like it it's Brad Dorris' performance and, you know, not taking anything from Tommy Lee Jones, it's also his performance that lets the the twist happen and it works. It works really good. You know, Giallos love their misdirection for their killer reveals. Sometimes they do good ones, sometimes it seems like they're just picking a name out of the hat and that's the killer. This one. <laughs> right. Totally. The, this one is fully earned, and it's really, really good. And even how he kind of, like, spills it, like he mistakenly says I when he's referring to Brad Dorf character, implying himself, and that's when Faye Dunaway, Laura Mars, catches on that he's the killer. And he gives a really great reveal speech and explanation why he's killing. And again, it's kind of a classic, you know, giallo killer monologue before they get their comeuppance. Like this whole thing, and then... Sometimes they run off, sometimes they get murdered or by the hero, that kind of thing, which is kind of what happens in this one. But with his explanation, you get into the implication of multiple personalities, which is, you know, it, obviously this is a bit of a lift from Psycho because you think of Norman Bates had multiple personalities. He had himself and he had his mother. So, you know, his personalities are struggling in front of Faye Dunaway's Laura Mars where he basically asks her to kill him because, like, he loves her now. He doesn't want to kill her, so the only way to end it, because there's going to be no relationship between them, because she knows he's the killer, is for her to ace him. And she does. And it's a pretty great ending. The thing is, overall, as we talk about this movie, I don't know if it was intentional, if... Irvin Kirshner had been watching Giallos, or maybe it was just all the Hitchcock influence, which I think is carried on through all these movies. But for whatever reason, from the staging, the composition, to the fetishy, like close-ups, the the sleaziness of some of it, you know, the fashion aspect, it's it could have easily been a Italian production in America making this film. It feels that way. In a lot of ways, all of these all of these people were bringing Hitchcock into the new age of film at the time. Which is funny because Hitchcock was still making movies in the 70s. He actually made two. He made Frenzy, which was, mm -hmm. in a way, Frenzy was a little bit Giallo-esque and, you know, proto-slashery. And he also made Family Plot, which deals with psychics and fake psychics and stuff like that. So Hitchcock was still kicking around then, but like I think the influence on his big films, be it you know Psycho, it it and you know Shadow of the Doubt and Stranger on the Train and those kind of things, that's where the influence of all these come in. So again, 
I can't say if Kirshner had seen any Giallos or if it's just Hitchcock, but whatever he did, he nailed the formula perfectly. That's all I can say. Um, a couple of similar Giallos, if you want to kind of pair them up. You know, we already mentioned Fulci's The Psychic before. That's a good one. Deep Red, Bird with the Crystal Plumage. You know, a lot of the Argentos really can fit in nice with this. And if you want to get a little more sleazy with it, strip nude for your killer. Doesn't have any of the psychic stuff, but definitely has the fashion angle. Final thoughts on Laura Mars, Nick. Hop in your fucking Tesla truck and go to the fucking nearest place you can see Laura Mars. Go go buy it, whatever. I'm always planning January Giallo in advance, and maybe next year Laura Mars' eyes might make an appearance. I, I, I think it'd be a fun one to screen. But we're going to take another commercial break, but we're in turn. More Giallo being adjacent here on the Cinematic Void Podcast. Her world. Sensual, dazzling, his world, dangerous, violent. Drawn by a mystery, their lives converge. Faye Dunaway, Tommy Lee Jones, Eyes of Laura Mars. A thrilling vision of romance and terror. Rated R. Starts Friday at Phipps Penthouse, Perimeter Mall. Unbearable suspense keeps you on the edge of an abyss of terror. Take a cult film odyssey into Cinemadness with Cinematic Void. Based in Los Angeles, Cinematic Void is a film series that specializes in horror and exploitation films. Currently, we are hosting Cinematic Void Up All Night in the Cinemadness Movie, a monthly virtual screening series, as well as the Cinematic Void podcast, where we dive deeper into the world of cult cinema. You can find Cinematic Void on the World Wide Web at CinematicVoid.com, as well as Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And if you like what we do, you can support Cinematic Void by joining our Patreon. Until next time, see you in the void. Welcome back. This is the final film we're discussing here on the Cinematic Void podcast, which we consider Giallo adjacent. And like the previous one we talked about, I think this is another one that's pretty damn close for a lot of reasons, be it the Hitchcock influence or whether if the director had seen Age Yellows or not. It's a movie from 1980. Stars Nancy Allen, Keith Gordon, Michael Caine, Angie Dickinson, and Dennis Franz. It's directed by Brian De Palma, so of course we're talking about Dress to Kill. The film also features another stellar score by Pino Donaggio, who also scored Don't Look Now, and... You know, we could honestly have done a whole Giallo adjacent episode on the Palma films. You know, we could have included Sisters, we could have included Body Double, we could have even included Blowout to some extent, because there's elements in all those movies. I think maybe out of those I mentioned, Sisters is probably the closest besides this one, but I, I feel like if we're going to talk Giallo and American Giallo, we have to talk Dress to Kill. As previously stated, and uh, did an episode of few i guess back in february for the five years of void we talked about dress to kill with Derry argento's tenebrae because it was one of my favorite screenings that i hosted de palma has always been steadfast in his admiration of hitchcock but always claimed he's never ever seen a giallo specifically one by Derry argento and then as we also mentioned in that episode when i did a q a with nancy allen she talked about she went and auditioned for inferno which was directed by Derry argento which came out the same year this movie did. So I feel like I feel De Palma was aware of Argento. I know Argento was aware of De Palma, but obviously I played this movie with Tenebrae for the 
De Palma versus Argento year I did for January Giallo. So let's just kind of jump right into it. How's Dress to Kill Giallo, Jason? I mean, really, how isn't it? One, you get the most obvious thing. You get a black glove, straight razor wielding killer. Boom, right there. Look it up in the dictionary. I mean, it, it's textbook. Textbook, <laughs> goddammit. Besides that, you get a nice sheen of sex and sleaze, which a lot of GLOs have. You get dream sequences, death premonitions. You get the opening shower scene where Angie Dickinson is like, you know, having a sex dream because she's unfulfilled. But you have that opening, very graphic shower scene. Mm-hmm. Especially the unrated version, which is, you know, there's a lot of sleazy giallo shower scenes as well. There's uh, Crimes of the Black Cat has one. There's one in Strange Vice of Mrs. Ward. So, again, and also, obviously, Psycho. Duh. I mean, I'm, I'm sure that's De Palma's main influence, but the sleazy end of it was popping up in, like, those giallos I mentioned. You also have the ending shower scene with Nancy Allen that kind of, like, replays that opening one where she gets her throat cut... So, you know, there's all that. You have amateur detective work, which is hasn't come out in any of these, but like there's a lot of giallos where like someone gets forced to either prove their innocence or they need to solve the crime for some reason. Like, you know, Deep Red, David Hemming's character has gets thrown in that. And an interesting part of this like amateur detective stuff. So the amateur detective's movie is Nancy Allen's like sex worker and Keith Gordon's, like, super nerd kid who's the son, or his character's the son of Angie Dickinson, who gets murdered in the movie. So, in real life, Keith Gordon's character is based on Brian De Palma and something that happened in his childhood. When he was a kid, his mother and him, I guess, had a feeling that his father was having an affair. So, a lot of the stuff you see Keith Gordon do in this movie, surveillance and, like, you know, setting up cameras and, like, recording stuff De Palma did this as a kid and actually caught his father cheating on his mother wow dude that's crazy that's yeah. crazy like leave him that's that's rough dude I mean you're also thinking like when De Palma was a kid it was probably like 40s 50s yeah maybe yeah, 60 sure. so you can't track someone's GPS or internet stuff like if you were gonna find if you're gonna find out the dirt you had to go get the dirt the thing is <laughs> I feel like this also explains a lot of the voyeurisms and the way sex is portrayed in De Palma movies was that childhood experience, but we're not going to get into the psychoanalysm on De Palma, but we will about this film. So let's talk about what is what really drives home that this is the American version of a giallo. It's that elevator murder. It's an all-timer giallo kill. I'd say it's an all-time slasher kill. Hell, I'd say it's an all-timer in erotic thriller kills. Like, it's... It's masterful. The staging, the violence, the way Nancy, Nancy Allen catches the glimpse of the killer and that little, like, reflecting mirror and then, like, grabs the razor as it's falling. It's so good. So well done. It's nasty. It's brutal. It's really comparable to, like, the the very, very, like, elaborate and stylized violence of Dario Argento. Absolutely. That same use of mirrors... Uh, they used in like uh, not the same use, but use of mirrors. Uh, they used in like Eyes of Laura Mars. Like that. That's something that I'm a, a total sucker for. So like when you start throwing out some like mirror shit, I'm like, let's fucking go. You got you've got my attention. And then there's other things in this movie. There's the Nancy Allen's character being attacked on the subway. I mean, obviously she gets, doesn't get murdered, but it's another expert, expertly done like 
sequence that could be in any giallo really you know showboating sequences you know this might be more of a specific comparison to De Palma and Argento because they both like to do not only showboaty murder scenes but showboaty scenes in general and the biggest one of this movie is when Angie Dickinson's walking around the museum and it's the you know the cat and mouse kind of flirty game with that guy that she ends up like going home or going to his house and fucking but that whole setup like the you know the cutting all that stuff is just really masterful and the palma did it so well like there's sequences like that and blowout and stuff like that like it's just that was his bag that was argento's bag which is why they kind of get co- outside the 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 looming shadow of hitchcock that covers both of them that's why they get a lot of comparisons. Another thing that giallos tend to have, but we haven't really talked about because it hasn't come up in the other ones, is psychoanalyst. You know, there's a few other giallos that dip into it. Sometimes it's like people going to therapy, trying to get over some trauma. Other times it's like a therapist being brought in to help solve the crime and trying to dissect why the killer's doing that kind of stuff. This one's a bit of a red herring, which we'll get into in a little bit. But first, we got to talk about cops. We had a we had a certain kind of cop in Laura Mars. You had Tommy Lee Jones's character, who's comes off empathetic, even though he ends up being the killer because of the split personalities. Then you have the over this shit cop Dennis Franz in this movie, where anything Nancy Allen says, he's like, I don't give a fuck. Like you need to find this person, otherwise you're going to jail, kind of thing. It's really great. You know, it's kind of a throwback to like a lot of the tough guy cops in a lot of. 70s giallos especially when they started drifting more towards euro crime and less away from like thriller when they got more police heavy and that kind of stuff you also get a red herring you have the blonde woman who's falling around nancy allen's character that ends up being an undercover cop and you also have the red herring of the voicemails from bobby who is the transgender alleged former client to um, michael kane's dr elliot but it turns out Dr. Elliot and Bobby are one and the same. Which brings us to split personalities once again. This is a, I think this is, I'd say, like the, th- the third film we've talked about now that has tread into this territory. Images, Eyes of Laura Mars, and now this one. And it deals with Michael Caine's split personality of Dr. Elliot and Bobby. And obviously this is another nod to Psycho because you get Norman Bates and Mrs. Bates. However, this movie now trudges into something we haven't brought up yet, which is the representation of transgender characters. And we can't really avoid it because it's a big part of this movie. Now, in Giallo's, there have been plenty of instances of transgender characters appearing, and to mixed results. Sometimes they're portrayed positively, other times they're portrayed as the butt of a joke. Argento is actually portrayed or had a lot of transgender characters in his movies the bird with crystal plumage has a kind of like a trans bar well i'll just say um psycho really just you know this ultimately comes from psycho and and norman bates um you know turning into his mom or whatever which wasn't you know yeah i mean it's it was a different thing than but like by the time 80s hit like you know like there's a lot of transgender people there was like sex sex operations that were happening and becoming Mm -hmm. you know more available and more safely available and like in order if you wanted to get a sex change operation you had to go to a psychiatrist at least at that time i don't know 
what the requirements are now, but like, you know, it was a thing. And obviously because in Europe where Argento was making his movies, I mean, even in Tenebrae, he actually had a transgender actor, even Robbins in it. She was the woman that wears the red shoes that shoves the heel into um, the young Peter Neal's mouth during those flashback scenes. So, so it's kind of weird in Italy, like sex and transgender and gay politics and like representation were like at times it was progressive at times it was regressive. And, but in the U S they tended to be more regressive, which is when we got to talk about dress to kill. Is it a positive portrayal of trans people? Nope. Not in this. No, no. (laughs) And you know, there's a lot of discourse about it and I've seen, you know, trans people write articles like, liking the movie but having its criticism or having their criticism about the movie i've seen trans people who absolutely hate it along with silence of the lambs and stuff like that i've seen film film critics reevaluate it because like you know the discourse kind of kicked up when it hit criterion on blu-ray for the first time in 2015 and then it came up again for the film's 40th anniversary so you know it's a mixed mash of things and i'm not a trans person so i can't i'm not gonna tell a trans person how they feel about this movie, honestly. But I'm going to put this quote from Brian De Palma on the transphobic aspects of the film. This is from a 2016 interview in Entertainment Weekly. He said, I don't know what the transgender community would think of the film now. Obviously, I realize that it's not good for their image to be transgender and also be portrayed as a psychotic murderer. But I think the perception passes with time. We're in a different time now. And then he added that he was glad the film has become a favorite of the gay community, which he attributed to it being very fl- the flamboyance of the film. Hmm. And that was that was my only comment was really just notably the passing of time. Cultures changed significantly. I think we're trying to advance to be better. And obviously, you know, the thing is, it's just transgender killers. There's a lot of horror movies that lean into it from like Sleepaway Camp to like Hide and Go Shriek. It's it's a genre staple. But like, you know, these are exploitation movies, so everyone's getting exploited but like understandably if you're a community that's marginalized these kind of things hit a lot harder than say you know oh it's another white dude that's a serial killer you know that has no bearing on me but like you know as someone that's been like you know persecuted and like accused of being like a monster it hits a little different but i wanted to throw the De Palma quote in there not because i'm trying to he's not trying to justify the film he's basically saying i made a film at a certain point in time And it's a bad take, and it aged poorly, but there's other things to take away from the movie. Mm, Yeah, context matters. Context does matter, and and he's he's not he's not like fuck you. He's hey this exactly. But talking about the transgender aspect and the transphobic aspect, you get into another main theme that's in a lot of giallos, which is really heavy and plays in this more is. The theme of repression. The amount of giallo killers who are repressed and lash out is because they're repressed is staggering. Repression comes in many forms in these movies, but, you know, sexual repression and childhood trauma are usually the big two, and sometimes they end up going together. Now, obviously, you know, Dr. Elliot, Michael Caine's character, is double repressed in this movie. Elliot won't allow himself to fuck Angie Dickinson's character when she comes in and say, will you make love to me? He's like, no, I can't do it because I'm a professional. And then, on the flip side, he's repressing the Bobby side of himself because she wants to become a full woman, 
and because he's like, nah, I still like women. This weird, complicated thing that doesn't work. I guess it falls in the split personality thing, you know. It's like, it's double repression. And then the two characters in the movie that aren't repressed, you get two different perspectives on it. You know, one of them's Angie Dickinson's character, who ultimately pays the price when she decides, I don't want to be repressed, I want to live my life. Which is why she goes home, and or not doesn't go home. That's why she hops in the cab with a dude, goes back to his apartment, and fucks him. And she kind of gets, like, double punished for letting go of her own repressions and hang-ups. First, she discovers the guy has STD. And second, and more tragically, she gets murdered. But then... The other unrepressed character you have quite, to boot. And, and again, that was the uh, that was the elevator murder that was quite vicious. Yeah, with the with the reflection and all that that stuff. Great, great scene. One of the one of the one of the best scenes in the whole film for sure. Yeah, like I said, it's all timer murder in any horror movie, yeah. let alone yeah. Giallo slash whatever. And although I can't confirm this. But I do have a hunch that Angie's arc in this movie was probably a little bit of inspiration or possibly being parodied by Lucia Fulci in New York Ripper with Alexandra Del Colle's character. The, she's the one that goes to all the different sex clubs and is like looking for dudes. She's the one that gets foot fucked. <laughs> so there's definitely a parallel where she crosses line, sleeps with someone that seems like a bad idea, and then gets murdered. Mm-hmm. And then a very similar graphic fashion to Angie Dickinson's elevator murder. But this also leads into the other unrepressed character in this movie, who obviously the dated transphobic aspects of the movie, you know, no longer work. But the interesting thing is Nancy's character is a sex worker and it comes off as progressive because one, she doesn't have a pimp. She's working for herself. Two, she's looking how to make money in other avenues. Like, the guy she's with that when they walk up to the elevator, like, she's getting stock tips. Like, she's a businesswoman, mm-hmm. which is kind of where sex work culture is headed in the last few years. Obviously, there's still people that have a stigma about it. But, like, in a way, she's a sex-positive character. But funny enough, at the time when the movie came out, a lot of people hated her performance. And I think... The reason why, because funny enough, Angie Dickinson, everyone's like, oh, she should have got an Oscar nomination for all that. Angie's just playing the overglorified Janet Lee character in this. She's the mm-hmm. she's the red herring murder of the, the bigger star who gets whacked early in the movie. It's kind of weird that the victim gets more praise than the person that's solving the crime. Which is why I think what while some things in Dress to Kill haven't aged well, this is one of the things that has come into age. It's kind of an interesting dynamic that goes with this. And, you know, Giallos have had their fair share of strong women who are, you know, very sexual, but also smart, you know, resourceful. I think Edwidge Fennec, who we already mentioned, who's in, you know, Mm -hmm. a ton of Sergio Martino Giallos. Like, you know, this could be a role that she would have played. A couple more things before we close on Dress to Kill. Um, Similar Giallos. Obviously, Tenebrae. I mean, I programmed them because I think there is a through line between both those movies and what they're tackling and they're dealing, both dealing with repression. You know, Peter Neal and Tenebrae is repressed because of his childhood trauma, except he uses another killer who he kills to basically do his own murders kind of thing. And another one, 
which, funny enough, when I was first pitching Cinematic Void, I think I mentioned this in the Five Years of Void podcast as well, was one of my early pitches was Dress to Kill, Tenebrae, and Lucio Fulci's New York Ripper as a triple bill. Because I feel like they all tread in the same sleazy waters, if that makes sense. And there's a lot of through lines to them. What are your final thoughts on Dress to Kill, Nick? I'm a big De Palma fan, especially this era in general. So like, you know, it's a fucking, it's a fucking win for me, man. I, I love, I love Dress to Kill. I love Blowout. Like when, when, when De Palma was doing Hitchcock again, you know, when De Palma was doing Hitchcock, Sisters, Obsession, dude, all that shit, all that shit is fucking sick as hell. So Dress to Kill it, and Dress to Kill, you know what? Dress to Kill is probably the best of them all. Personally, I go blow out over Dress to Kill, but like it's it's hairs. okay. Yeah, you're probably you're probably right. I, I'm gonna look excited. Yeah, probably, but, probably blow out, but <laughs> I'm gonna look excited. But but Dress to Kill is sick as hell. All right, we're gonna take one last commercial break, but when we return, it's gonna be time for read, watch, and listen here on the Cinematic Void Podcast. Brian De Palma, the master of the macabre, invites you to a showing of the latest fashion. In murder. <laughs> Dressed to kill. Michael Caine. Angie Dickinson. Nancy Allen. Dressed to kill. Murder. Made to order. By Brian De Palma. Coming to a theater near you, July 25th. Welcome back. It's now time for... On the Cinematic Void Podcast, where we talk about all the things we've been reading, watching, and or listening to since the last time we recorded a podcast. Nick, why don't you tell me what you've been reading, watching, and or listening to? Uh, so, I haven't been reading a damn thing, so I'll skip that. Actually... I've been I've been going back over the uh, the Cosmic Trigger uh, Robin Anton Wilson after I just finished the second Cosmic Trigger uh, book so now I'm just rereading the first one but uh, beyond that uh, I just watched No Reason um, which I just got from Unearthed Films which we seem to talk about at every episode at this point is it by the, is it by the guy that did Burning Moon yeah it is so uh so no reason is actually a film from 2010 it's by olaf itterbach uh who did burning moon um and i haven't seen burning moon actually but i i I know it's kind of notorious um so i just saw that this came out on unearthed and i'm like hey i'll just check it out and it's it's wild man it's it's only about an hour long um this woman Kind of, it kind of plays backwards, like Memento or Irreversible or something like that. This woman, uh, you know, kind of dies at the beginning and then ends up in hell, and she's going through the different levels of hell. And um, like, you know, I don't know, I don't know if I love it or I don't know if it's a good movie, but I really liked it and like really enjoyed like like really enjoyed how fucked up it is. And like, there's like Hellraiser parts and kind of parts that are similar to like Saw it's a kind of a it's an amalgamation of a bunch of things but like kind of to its credit for some reason like the different stages of hell are like these different like torturous i i don't know it's kind of it's 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 garbage 
it's garbage film, but I, but I love, you know, I love it, man. And like, you know, I want to, it's, it's artful. It's, it's artful garbage. I don't, I don't know, man. That's, that sounds harsh, but, but I recommend it. <laughs> How, does that make, does that make sense? Makes sense. <laughs> you know, um, it's, it's filthy. It's filthy and violent and, and vile. And like, she wakes up in hell in like a pile of fucking limbs it's just like straight out of like a, a a pig destroyer song from the 90s period <laughs> prowler in the yard bro right it's fucking just ill she wakes up in a pile of limbs and it's 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 actually foul like if if i say it's foul it's foul i mean that's all you've been watching lately so <laughs> <laughs> yeah so so that's what's up with that, and that's that's actually uh, I think the last time since the last we spoke, aside from some of the films that we watched, you know, for the for the for the show this week, um, this is really the only thing I've watched aside from like watching a few of the um, Decalogue episodes, the Krzysztof uh, uh, Kieslowski, Polish director. Like I've watched some of those episodes of, of Decalogue, but um, but otherwise I've been kind of busy, so just not watching a whole lot of stuff. Music wise. I've just been feeling a bunch of death metal lately. So I've been listening to the uh, 200 Stab Wounds record on Maggot Stomp. Uh, Opening the Hell Gates by Fulci just came out on, on cassette on Maggot Stomp. I just grabbed one of those. And uh, Fulci is a sick um, Fulci is a sick de- like death metal band from Italy. <laughs> also from Italy, which is kind of, which is like kind of funny and cool. Like that, they're that much of dicks. Like, it seems like they have a sense of humor, you know? They're just like, we're from Italy, so fuck you. We're going to name our band Fulci. And luckily, 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 they're good enough that, like, you know what I mean? Like, if you name your band Fulci, you better be sick as hell. And I think that they actually live up to their name. Um, this is their first LP, and Maggot Stomp just reissued it on cassette uh, for just an American release. Uh, but they do have another record called Tropical Sun, and I highly recommend that as well. Fulci is like one of one of the best death metal bands going right now. It's just simple, old school, caveman, fucked up, horror related, just sick shit. Um, so Fulci, uh, another new uh, karate, not new karate record, but another karate reissue just happened on Numero Group. So that's streaming now, uh, a, a bed, a bed in the ocean. Um, been listening to that and I've been listening to the Anenzophalia Ephemeral Dawn record which is like a industrial noise electronic kind of record that's um, just moody and fucked up and it'll ruin your day sounds very upbeat Nick <laughs> yep you know me yeah. so for my rewatch listen reading been slacking on that shit so I ain't read a fucking thing but I've also been kind of busy, so it's sitting down to read is kind of hard. Also, I've been watching a lot of stuff. The only thing I put down that I watched recently was on Bahakala, which is the infamous Bollywood remake of A Nightmare on Elm Street, which was recently put out on Blu-ray by the homies at Masker Video. So what you get is a close reimagining of Elm Street, but because it's a Bollywood production, you get musical numbers thrown in. <laughs> and... Probably an unauthorized use of Michael Jackson's Thriller. But it's a lot of fun, even though it's like two hours plus. But all Bollywood movies are that way. You know, I I think back when, like, Bruce Holchek used to get copies of different Bollywood movies and we'd watch them for movie nights and they were all, like, three hours long. 
but I have to ask him about it when we have him on the podcast coming up about the um, I Know What You Did Last Summer Bollywood remake, which Whoa. was absolutely <laughs> insane. So we, we're supposed to talk Bigfoot with Bruce, but we'll probably talk some Bollywood, too. For my listen, I had this song stuck in my head. It's Alan Tam's The World Has Gone Crazy from the soundtrack of Ringo Lam's Full Contact, which is one of the best heroic bloodshed movies ever made. I couldn't get this fucking song out of my head. I found it on Apple Music finally, but like, I searched his name, but all the song titles were in um, Chinese, so it took me forever to find it, but once I did, it's like, yes. So I threw that on repeat. The only other record I've been listening to, and I don't have ex- explanation as to why, is Journey Frontiers. Mostly Worlds Apart, because that's a fucking banger. I don't know. Yeah, Journey's sick. I mean... When I take my edible at night, like going to sleep, I listen to that. And those drums fucking hit hard, son. Not even Hell joking. Oh, yeah. Hell yeah. <laughs> but, <Respects>. So <laughs> so that's all I got for rewatching this. But uh, that wraps up this episode of the Cinematic Void Podcast. I'm going to throw out some things that are coming up soon. We're going to have a trip to Camp Void coming up, as well as a Bigfoot episode we already alluded to with bruce holchek so keep your ears open for those coming up on the cinemadness movie the next one will be friday june 25th and it's presented by incidentally enough our friends at masker video and before you ask it's going to be a bit lighter than the fetus screening so if you were expecting extreme gore and really fucked up shit this won't be the one but it's a really fun movie so can't wait for you guys to check it out. And coming later this summer, Cinematic Void will be back in theaters, goddammit. Really excited about it. We'll be screening films over the Lost Fields 3. It's part of the American Cinematex residency while the Egyptian theater is being fixed up. So I don't, I can't really share what I'm showing yet because we're still working on dates. I do know what movie. And all I will say is, my tagline for it is, bring the Hollywood sleaze to the Lost Fields 3. So it's right. It's right by uh, Danzig's old house. Yeah. Oh uh, yeah. The the old <laughs> the the house that's all black with the shitty shutters and dead grass with the, with, with the bricks out front. Yeah. I I think he still lives there. I think he lives in Lucille Ball's old house now, over in Beverly Hills. That 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 tracks. That yeah. that does track. But until next time, see you in the void. There's too many pieces missing. They should be there. I know where they are.